Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. If you fear one thing in your life, fear the Jinn. An ancient Arabian legend says that God made humans from mud and clay, angels from light, and the Jinn from smokeless fire. In the Western world, many people readily accept the idea of angels and demons, but most have no knowledge of the Jinn, called God's other people. According to legend, the Jinn were the first inhabitants of this world, where they lived for thousands of years before humanity arrived. In order to make room for humans, angels took the Jinn out of this world and placed them in a dimension that parallels our own. There they stay hidden from our view. They have the ability to see and interact with us, but we have difficulty seeing them. They are cloaked in mystery, and it suits their covert purpose. The goal of most Jinn is to retake this world, which they feel rightfully belongs to them. In order to succeed, they must first make humanity give up stewardship of this reality. They are accomplishing this by stealth and disguise. They have great powers and plenty of time, for they live for centuries. Shape-shifting Jen may be responsible for many forms of paranormal phenomenon and experience, such as UFOs, shadow people, ghosts, poltergeists, and demonic possession. In such ways, they gain access to us that enables them to steal our life force and information about us and to manipulate and use us without revealing their true form and purpose. These negative experiences are on the rise. In their new book, The Vengeful Gen, authors Philip J. Imbrogno and Rosemary Ellen Guiley, two of the leading experts on the paranormal, present the findings of their in-depth investigation of the Jinn. Who they are, what they're doing, and how can they be countered. Rosemary and Phil have established JinnUniverse.com as an educational website about these mysterious and powerful beings. To learn more about the Jinn and their actions in our world, be sure to order your copy of their groundbreaking and revealing book the Vengeful Gen on the link provided on the homepage. All copies are autographed by both Rosemary Ellen Guiley and Phil Imbrogno. So be sure to visit genuniverse.com. That's D J I N N universe.com. The Gen may be one of the greatest dangers to ever present itself to the human race. Now their mask is off. Good evening. 
My good friend and mentor, Dr. Carlos Castaneda, had 11 best-selling books in his career. In tonight's show, I'm going to share with you a reading of his second book called A Separate Reality. In about two weeks, I'm going to take a, a new direction with my show, and I will be teaching shamanic lessons from my lineage. I call these uh, fireside lessons primarily because most of them were taught to me in front of an open campfire, and therefore I'm going to teach you in front of a campfire as well. The first one of these, I will be talking to you about how I met Carlos and my apprenticeship with him. And... Uh, you know, how it all got started. It'll be more of a uh, up-close-and-personal type uh, presentation. From that point on, we will be doing weekly fireside lessons where I will teach you many of the secrets of the Toltec Shaman. Occasionally, I will have a special guest coming on. Uh, I have uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley coming on in March. Uh, she will be talking about uh, the Jen, uh, Robert Bruce, will be coming on from Australia, and he will be talking about uh, many different things, actually, energy work and uh, astral projection. I have uh, my good friend Peter Fippen coming on, talking about uh, what's new in, in his work and, uh, and his adventures in uh, investigating paranormal phenomenon, plus many more surprises. I now present to you a separate reality by Dr. Carlos Castaneda. Ten years ago, I had the fortune of meeting a Yaqui Indian from northwestern Mexico. I call him Don Juan. In Spanish, Don is an appellative used to denote respect. I made Don Juan's acquaintance under the most fortuitous circumstances. I was sitting with Bill, a friend of mine, in a bus depot in a border town in Arizona. We were very quiet. In the late afternoon, the summer heat seemed unbearable. Suddenly, he leaned over and tapped me on the shoulder. There's the man I told you about, he said in a low voice. He nodded casually toward the entrance. An old man had just walked in. What did you tell me about him, I asked. He's the Indian that knows about peyote, remember? Don Juan and I became friends, and for a year I paid him innumerable visits. I found his manner very reassuring and his sense of humor superb. But above all, I felt there was a silent consistency about his acts a consistency which was thoroughly baffling to me. I felt a strange delight in his presence, and at the same time I experienced a strange discomfort. His mere company forced me to make a tremendous reevaluation of my models of behavior. I had been reared, perhaps like everyone else, to have a readiness to accept man as an essentially weak and fallible creature. What impressed me about Don Juan was the fact that he did not make a point of being weak and helpless and just being around him ensured an unfavorable comparison between his way of behaving and mine. In 1961, a year after our first meeting, Don Juan disclosed to me that he had a secret knowledge of medicinal plants. He told me he was a brujo. The Spanish word brujo can be rendered in English as sorcerer, medicine man, curer. From that point on, the relation between us changed. I became his apprentice and for the next four years he endeavored to teach me the mysteries of sorcery. 
I have written about that apprenticeship in the teachings of Don Juan, a Yaqui way of knowledge. Don Juan's method of teaching required an extraordinary effort on the part of the apprentice. In fact, the degree of participation and involvement needed was so strenuous that by the end of 1965 I had to withdraw from the apprenticeship. I can say now, with the perspective of the five years that have elapsed, that at that time Don Juan's teachings had begun to pose a serious threat to my idea of the world. I had begun to lose the certainty which all of us have that the reality of everyday life is something we can take for granted. At the time of my withdrawal, I was convinced that my decision was final. I did not want to see Don Juan ever again. However, in April of 1968, an early copy of my book was made available to me, and I felt compelled to show it to him. I paid him a visit. April 2nd, 1968. Don Juan looked at me for a moment and did not seem at all surprised to see me, even though it had been more than two years since I last visited him. He put his hand on my shoulder and smiled gently and said that I looked different, that I was getting fat and soft. I had brought him a copy of my book. Without any preliminaries, I took it out of my briefcase and handed it to him. It's a book about you, Don Juan, I said. He took it and flipped through the pages as if they were a deck of cards. He liked the green color on the dust jacket and the height of the book. He felt the cover with his palms, turned it around a couple of times, and then handed it back to me. I felt a great surge of pride. I want you to keep it, I said. He shook his head with a silent laugh. I better not, he said, and then added with a broad smile, you know what we do with paper in Mexico. I laughed. I thought his touch of irony was beautiful. My visit to Don Juan started a new cycle. I had no trouble falling back again into my old pattern of enjoying his sense of drama and his humor and his patience with me. I definitely felt that I had to visit him more often. Not to see Don Juan was indeed a great loss for me. May 21st, 1968. Nothing out of the ordinary happened during my trip to see Don Juan. The temperature in the desert was over 100 degrees and was quite uncomfortable. The heat subsided in the late afternoon, and by the time I arrived at his house in the early evening, there was a cool breeze. I was not very tired, so we sat in his room and talked. I felt comfortable and relaxed, and we talked for hours. We were talking about Oaxaca. I told Don Juan that once I had arrived in the city on a day when market was open, a day when scores of Indians from all over the area flocked to town to sell food and all kinds of trinkets. I mentioned that I was particularly interested in a man who was selling medicinal plants. He carried a wooden kit in which he kept a number of small jars with dry, shredded plants, and he stood in the middle of the street holding one jar, yelling a very peculiar sing-song. I bring here, he would say, for fleas, flies, mosquitoes, and lice, also for pigs, horses, goats, and cows. I have here for all the maladies of man, the mumps, the measles, rheumatism, and gout. I bring here for the heart, the liver, the stomach, and the loin. Come near, ladies and gentlemen. I bring here for fleas, flies, mosquitoes, and lice. I had listened to him for a long time. His format consisted of enumerating a long list of man's diseases for which he claimed to have a cure. The device he used to give rhythm to his sing-song was to pause after naming a set of four. Don Juan said that he also used to sell herbs in the market in Oaxaca when he was young. He said he still remembered his selling pitch, and he yelled it for me. He said that he and his friend Vicente used to make concoctions. Those concoctions were really good, Don Juan said. My friend Vicente used to make great extracts of plants. 
I told Don Juan that once during one of my trips to Mexico, I had met his friend Vicente. Don Juan seemed to be surprised and wanted to know more about it. I was driving through Durango at that time and remembered that Don Juan had once told me I should pay a visit to his friend who lived there. I looked for him and found him and talked to him for a while. Before I left, he gave me a sack with some plants and a series of instructions for replanting one of them. I stopped on my way to the town of Aguas Calientes. I made sure that there were no people around. For at least ten minutes I had been watching the road and surrounding areas. There had not been any houses in sight, nor cattle grazing alongside the road. I stopped on the top of a small hill. From there I could see the road ahead and behind me. It was deserted in both directions as far into the distance as I could see. I waited for a few minutes to orient myself and to remember Don Vicente's instructions. I took one of the plants, walked into a field of cacti on the east side of the road, and planted it as Don Vicente had instructed me. I had with me a bottle of mineral water with which I intended to sprinkle the plant. I tried to open it by hitting the cap with a small iron bar I had used as a digging stick, but the bottle exploded and a glass sliver nicked my upper lip and made it bleed. I walked back to my car to get another bottle of mineral water. As I was getting it out of my trunk, a man driving a VW station wagon stopped and asked me if I needed help. I said that everything was all right and he drove away. I returned to water the plant and then I started back toward my car. When I was perhaps a hundred feet away, I heard some voices. I hurried down a slope onto the highway and found three Mexicans at the car, two men and one woman. One of the men was sitting on the front bumper. He was perhaps in his late thirties of medium height with black curly hair. He was carrying a bundle on his back and was wearing old slacks and a worn-out pinkish shirt. His shoes were untied and perhaps too big for his feet. They seemed to be loose and uncomfortable. He was sweating profusely. The other man was standing about twenty feet away from the car. He was small-boned and shorter than the other man, and his hair was straight and combed backwards. He carried a smaller bundle and was older, perhaps in his late forties. His clothes were in better condition. He had on a dark blue jacket, light blue slacks, and black shoes. He was not perspiring at all and seemed aloof, uninterested. The woman appeared to be also in her forties. She was fat and had a very dark complexion. She wore black capris, a white sweater, and black pointed shoes. She did not carry a bundle, but was holding a portable transistor radio. She seemed to be very tired, and her face was covered with beads of perspiration. When I approached them, the younger man and the woman accosted me. They wanted a ride. I told them I did not have any space in my car. I showed them that the back seat was loaded to capacity and there was really no room left. The man suggested that if I drove slow, they could go perched on the back bumper or lying across the front fender. I felt the idea was preposterous, yet there was such an urgency in their plea that I felt very sad and ill at ease. I gave them some money for their bus fare. The younger man took the bills and thanked me, but the older man turned his back disdainfully. I want transportation, he said. I'm not interested in money. Then he turned to me. Can't you give us some food or water, he asked. I really had nothing to give them. They stood there looking at me for a moment, and then they began to walk away. I got into my car and tried to start the motor. The heat was very intense and the motor seemed to be flooded. The younger man stopped when he heard the starter grinding and came back and stood behind my car ready to push it. I felt a tremendous apprehension. I was actually panting desperately. The motor finally ignited and I zoomed away. After I had finished relating this, Don Juan remained pensive for a long time. Why haven't you told me this before, he said without looking at me. I didn't know what to say. I shrugged my shoulders and told him that I never thought it was important. 
It's damn important, he said. Vicente is a first-rate sorcerer. He gave you something to plant because he had his reasons. And if you encountered three people who seemed to have popped out of nowhere right after you had planted it, there was a reason for that too. But only a fool like you would disregard the incident and think it wasn't important. Don Juan shook his head from side to side and in a half-kidding tone expressed his bewilderment at what he called my baffling good luck. He said that my visiting Don Vicente was like walking into a lion's den armed with a twig. You're a damn fool, he said, and looked stern for a moment. But I followed Don Vicente's instructions to the letter. So what? Don't you understand that to follow his instructions was meaningless? Why? Because those instructions were designed for someone who could see, not for an idiot who got out with his life just by sheer luck. You went to see Vicente without preparation. He liked you and gave you a gift and that gift could easily have cost you your life. But why did he give me something so serious? If he's a sorcerer, he should have known that I don't know anything. No, he couldn't have seen that. You look as though you know, but you don't know much, really. I said I was sincerely convinced that I had never misrepresented myself, or at least not deliberately. He was quiet for some time, then he shrugged his shoulders and smiled. It's useless to complain, he said. And yet it's so difficult not to. Gifts of power happen so rarely in one's life. They're unique and precious. Take me, for instance. Nobody has ever made me such a gift. There are few people, to my knowledge, who ever had one. To waste something so unique is a shame. I see what you mean, Don Juan, I said. Is there anything I can do now to salvage the gift? He laughed and repeated several times. To salvage the gift. That sounds nice, he said. I like that. Yet there isn't anything one can do to salvage your gift. May 25th, 1968. Don Juan spent nearly all his time today showing me how to assemble trapping devices for small animals. We had been cutting and cleaning branches nearly all morning. There were many questions in my mind. I had to talk to him while we worked, but he had made a joke and said that of the two of us, only I could move my hands and my mouth at the same time. We finally sat down to rest and I blurted out a question. Don't I see things as they really are? No. Your eyes have learned only to look. Take, for example, the three people you encountered. The three Mexicans. You've described them in detail and even told me what clothes they wore. And that only proved to me that you didn't see them at all. If you were capable of seeing, you would have known on the spot that they were not people. They were not people. What were they? They were not people, that's all. But that's impossible. They were just like you and me. No, they were not. I'm sure of it. Don Juan said that the three people I had seen, whom he called those who are not people, los que no son gente, were in reality Don Vicente's allies. Real people look like luminous eggs when you see them. Non-people always look like people. That's what I meant when I said you cannot see an ally. Do you mean that some of the people I see in the streets are not really people, I asked, truly bewildered by his statement? Some of them are not, he said emphatically. On September 4th, 1968, I went to Sonora to visit Don Juan. Following a request he had made during my previous visit to him, I stopped on the way in Hermosillo to buy him a non-commercial tequila called Bocanora. His request seemed very odd to me at that time since I knew he disliked drinking, but I bought four bottles and put them in a box along with other things I had brought for him. Why, you got four bottles, he said laughing when he opened the box. I asked you to buy me one. 
I believe you thought the Bacanoro was for me, but it's for my grandson, Lucio, and you have to give it to him as though it's a personal gift of your own. I had met Don Juan's grandson two years before. He was 28 years old then. He was very tall, over six feet, and was always extravagantly well-dressed for his means and in comparison to his peers. Lucio was delighted to receive the liquor and immediately took the bottles inside his house, apparently to put them away. Don Juan made a casual comment that one should never hoard liquor and drink alone. Lucio's house was a flimsy, two-room, dirt-floor, waddle-and-daub construction. There were eight men inside the house, including Don Juan. Lucio addressed the whole group in Spanish and said in a loud voice that we were going to drink one bottle of Bacanora that I had brought for him from Hermosillo. He went into the other room, brought out a bottle, uncorked it and gave it to me along with a small tin cup. I poured a very small amount into the cup and drank it. The Bacanora seemed to be more fragrant and more dense than regular tequila, and stronger, too. It made me cough. I passed the bottle, and everyone poured himself a small drink, everyone except Don Juan. He just took the bottle and placed it in front of Lucio, who was at the end of the line. All of them made lively comments about the rich flavor of that particular bottle, and all of them agreed that the liquor must have come from the high mountains of Chihuahua. The bottle went around a second time. The men smacked their lips, repeated their statements of praise. During the second time around, Don Juan again did not drink, and I poured only a dab for myself, but the rest of them filled the cup to the brim. The bottle went around once more and was finished. Get the other bottles, Lucio, Don Juan said. Lucio seemed to vacillate, and Don Juan quite casually explained to the others that I had brought four bottles for Lucio. Carlos is learning about mescalito, and I'm teaching him, Don Juan said. All of them looked at me and smiled politely. Lucio went into the other room and returned with another bottle of Bacanora. He opened it, poured himself a large drink, and then passed it around. The conversation drifted to the probabilities of an American company coming to Sonora and its possible effect on the Yaquis. At one moment, the topics of conversation seemed to wane away. Don Juan turned to me and said loudly, Why don't you tell the guys here about your encounters with Mescalito? Is Mescalito peyote, Grandpa? Lucio asked curiously. Some people call it that way, Don Juan said dryly. I prefer to call it Mescalito. That confounded thing causes madness, said Gennaro, a tall, husky, middle-aged man. I think it's stupid to say that Mescalito causes madness, Don Juan said softly. Because if that were the case, Carlos would be in a straitjacket this very moment instead of being here talking to you. He has taken it, and look at him. He's fine. Bajea smiled and replied shyly, Who can tell? And everybody laughed. Look at me then, Don Juan said. I've known Mescalito nearly all my life and it has never hurt me. The men did not laugh, but it was obvious that they were not taking him seriously. On the other hand, Don Juan went on, it's true that Mescalito drives people crazy, as you said, but that's only when they come to him without knowing what they're doing. Esquerri, an old man who seemed to be Don Juan's age, chuckled softly as he shook his head from side to side. What do you mean by knowing, Juan? he asked. The last time I saw you, you were saying the same thing. People really go crazy when they take that peyote stuff, Gennaro continued. I've seen the Huichol Indians eating it. They acted as if they had rabies. Don Juan says there is a spirit in peyote, Benigno said. I've seen peyote in the field, but I've never seen spirits or anything of that sort, Pajaya added. Mescalito is like a spirit, perhaps, Don Juan explained. But whatever he is doesn't become clear until one knows about him. 
Bahia says that whoever takes it becomes an animal. Well, I don't see it that way. To me, those who think they are above animals live worse than animals. Look at my grandson here. He works without rest. I would say he lives to work like a mule. And all he does that is not animal-like is to get drunk. Everybody laughed. Victor, a very young man who seemed to be still in adolescence, laughed in a pitch above everybody else. Eligio, a young farmer, had not uttered a single word so far. He was sitting on the floor to my right. In what way would Peyote change all this, he asked. It seems to me that a man is born to work all his life, like mules do. Mescalito changes everything, Don Juan said. Yet we still have to work like everybody else, like mules. How can it change us, Eligio insisted. He teaches us the right way to live, Don Juan said. He helps and protects those who know him. The life you fellows are leading is no life at all. You don't know the happiness that comes from doing things deliberately. You don't have a protector. This is why you fellows are all drunkards. Look at my grandson here. Cut it out, Grandpa, Lucio protested. He's not lazy or stupid, Don Juan went on. But what else does he do beside drink? He buys leather jackets, Gennaro remarked, and the whole audience roared. Lucio gulped down more bacanora. And how is Peyote going to change that, Eligio asked. If Lucio would seek the protector, Don Juan said, his life would be changed. I don't know exactly how, but I am sure it would be different. He would stop drinking, is that what you mean, Eligio insisted? Perhaps he would. He needs something else beside tequila to make his life satisfying. If you think how little we know and how much there is to see, booze is what makes people crazy. It blurs the images. Mescalito, on the other hand, sharpens everything. It makes you see so very well, so very well. Lucio and Benigno looked at each other and smiled as though they had already heard the story before. Gennaro and Esquerre grew more impatient and began to talk at the same time. Victor laughed above all the other voices. The only one interested seemed to be Eligio. How can Peyote do all that, he asked. In the first place, Don Juan explained, you must want to become acquainted with him. And I think this is by far the most important thing. Then you must be offered to him. And you must meet with him many times before you can say you know him. And what happens then, Eligio asked. Gennaro interrupted. You crap on the roof with your ass on the ground. The audience roared. There was a long pause. The men seemed to be tired. The bottle was empty. Lucio, with obvious reluctance, opened another. Is Peyote Carlos protector too, Eligio asked. I wouldn't know that, Don Juan said. He's taken it three times, so ask him to tell you about it. They all turned to me curiously, and Eligio asked, Did you really take it? Yes, I did. Didn't it hurt your mouth, Lucio asked? It did. It also tasted terrible. Were you afraid, Benigno asked? I certainly was. Why did you do it then, Eligio asked. He said he wanted to know, Lucio answered for me. I think Carlos is getting to be like my grandpa. Both have been saying they want to know, but nobody knows what in the hell they want to know. It is impossible to explain that knowing, Don Juan said to Eligio, because it is different for every man. Eligio seemed to be nervous. He said to Don Juan, how can Peyote change our life? How? Don Juan did not answer. He stared fixedly at Eligio for a moment and then began to sing in Yaki. It was not a song proper, but a short recitation. We remained quiet for a long time. Then I asked Don Juan to translate the Yaki words for me. 
That was only for Yaki's, he said matter-of-factly. I felt dejected. I was sure he had said something of great importance. Don Juan got up. It's time to go home, he said. Lucio is drunk and Victor is asleep. September 16th, 1968. Don Juan and I sat quietly for a very long time. He seemed to be tired. I broke the silence and asked him about Eligio. Don Juan did not speak for a long time. He seemed to have become engulfed by thoughts. My setup was for Lucio, he said, and I found Eligio instead. I knew it was useless, but when we like someone, we should properly insist, as though it were possible to remake men. Lucio had courage when he was a little boy, and then he lost it along the way. He said that Lucio had always been his great concern, and that at one time they had lived together and were very close. But Lucio became gravely ill when he was seven, and Don Juan's son, a devout Catholic, made a vow to the Virgin of Guadalupe that Lucio would join a sacred dancing society if his life were spared. Lucio recovered and was forced to carry out the promise. He lasted one week as an apprentice and then made up his mind to break the vow. He thought he would have to die as a result of it, braced himself, and for a whole day he waited for death to come. Everybody made fun of the boy and the incident was never forgotten. October 4th, 1968. At a certain moment today, I asked Don Juan if he minded talking a bit more about seeing. If you want to see, you have to let the smoke guide you, he said emphatically. I won't talk about this anymore. I was helping him clean some dry herbs. We worked in complete silence for a long time. At a given moment, I brought up a question to him in a sort of compulsive, almost belligerent outburst. How does a man of knowledge exercise controlled folly when it comes to the death of a person he loves, I asked. Don Juan was taken aback by my question and looked at me quizzically. Take your grandson, Lucio, I said. Would your acts be controlled folly at the time of his death? Take my son, Ulalio. That's a better example, Don Juan replied calmly. He was crushed by rocks while working in the construction of the Pan American Highway. My acts toward him at the moment of his death were controlled folly. When I came down to the blasting area, he was almost dead but his body was so strong that it kept on moving and kicking. I stood in front of him and told the boys in the road crew not to move him anymore. They obeyed me and stood there surrounding my son, looking at his mangled body. I stood there too, but I did not look. I shifted my eyes so I would see his personal life disintegrating, expanding uncontrollably beyond its limits, like a fog of crystals, because that is the way life and death mix and expand. That is what I did at the time of my son's death. That's all one could ever do, and that is controlled folly. Had I looked at him, I would have watched him becoming immobile, and I would have felt a cry inside of me because never again would I look at his fine figure pacing the earth. I saw his death instead, and there was no sadness, no feeling. His death was equal to everything else. Don Juan was quiet for a moment. He seemed to be sad, but then he smiled and tapped my head. I thought about the people I love myself, and a terribly oppressive wave of self-pity enveloped me. Lucky you, Don Juan, I said. You can shift your eyes while I can only look. He found my statement funny and laughed. Lucky. Bull, he said. It's hard work. Just as we were getting into my car to start on a trip to central Mexico on October 5th, 1968, Don Juan stopped me. I have told you before, he said with a serious expression, that one should never reveal the name nor the whereabouts of a sorcerer. 
I believe you understood that you should never reveal my name nor the place where my body is. Now I'm going to ask you to do the same with a friend of mine, a friend you will call Gennaro. We're going to his house. We'll spend some time there. I assured Don Juan that I had never betrayed his confidence. I know that, he said without changing his serious expression. Yet I'm concerned with your becoming thoughtless. I protested, and Don Juan said his aim was only to remind me that every time one was careless in matters of sorcery, one was playing with an imminent and senseless death that could be averted by being thoughtful and aware. We will not touch upon this matter any longer, he said. Once we leave my house, we will not mention Gennaro, nor will we think about him. I want you to put your thoughts in order now. When you meet him, you must be clear and have no doubts in your mind. What kind of doubts are you referring to, Don Juan? Any kind of doubts, whatever. When you meet him, you ought to be crystal clear. He will see you. His strange admonitions made me very apprehensive. I mentioned that perhaps I should not meet his friend at all, but only drive to the vicinity of his friend's house and leave him there. What I've told you was only a precaution, he said. You've met one sorcerer already, Vicente, and he nearly killed you. Watch out this time. After we arrived in central Mexico, it took us two days to walk from where I left my car to his friend's house, a little shack perched on the side of a mountain. Don Juan's friend was at the door as if he had been waiting for us. You're welcome to my humble little shack, he said apologetically in Spanish. His words were a polite formula I had heard before in various rural areas of Mexico. Yet as he said the words, he laughed joyously for no overt reason, and I knew he was exercising his controlled folly. He did not care in the least that his house was a shack. I liked Don Gennaro very much. For the next two days, we went into the mountains to collect plants. Don Juan, Don Gennaro, and I left each day at the crack of dawn. We returned to the house in the late afternoon, and both days I was so tired that I fell asleep immediately. The third day, however, was different. The three of us worked together, and Don Juan asked Don Gennaro to teach me how to select certain plants. We returned around noon, and the old men sat for hours in front of the house in complete silence, as if they were in a state of trance. You must talk to the plants before you pick them, Don Juan said. He dropped his words casually and repeated his statement three times, as if to catch my attention. Nobody had said a word until he spoke. It was late in the afternoon. Don Juan was sitting on a flat rock facing the western mountains. Don Gennaro was sitting by him on a straw mat with his face toward the north. Don Juan had told me the first day we were there that those were their positions and that I had to sit on the ground at any place opposite to both of them. Don Gennaro was staring at me. I was taking notes and that seemed to baffle him. He smiled at me, shook his head, and said something to Don Juan. Don Juan shrugged his shoulders. I glanced at Don Gennaro and saw him performing a most unusual act. He was standing on his head without the aid of his arms or hands, and his legs were crossed as if he were sitting. The sight was so incongruous that it made me jump. When I realized he was doing something almost impossible from the point of view of body mechanics, he had gone back again to a normal sitting position. Don Juan, however, seemed to be cognizant of what was involved and celebrated Don Gennaro's performance with roaring laughter. Don Gennaro seemed to have noticed my confusion. He clapped his hands a couple of times and rolled on the ground again. Apparently, he wanted me to watch him. What had at first appeared to be rolling on the ground was actually leaning over in a sitting position and touching the ground with his head. He seemingly attained his illogical posture by gaining momentum, leaning over several times until the inertia carried his body to a vertical stand, so that for an instant he sat on his head. The two of them had another moment of mirth 
Then Don Juan became serious again and said that if I did not think of my death, my entire life would be only a personal chaos. He looked very stern. What else can a man have except his life and his death, he said to me. At that point I felt it was indispensable to take notes and I began writing again. Don Gennaro stared at me and smiled. Then he tilted his head back a little and opened his nostrils. He apparently had remarkable control over the muscles operating his nostrils because they opened up to perhaps twice their normal size. What was most comical about his clowning was not so much his gestures as his own reactions to them. After he enlarged his nostrils, he tumbled down, laughing, and worked his body again into the same strange sitting-on-his-head-upside-down posture. Don Juan laughed until tears rolled down his cheeks. I felt a bit embarrassed and laughed nervously. Don Juan looked at me still laughing and said that his friend was portraying me, that my tendency was to open my nostrils whenever I wrote, and that Don Gennaro thought that trying to become a sorcerer by taking notes was as absurd as sitting on one's head, and thus he had made up the ludicrous posture of resting the weight of his sitting body on his head. Perhaps you don't think it's funny, Don Juan said, but only Gennaro can work his way up to sitting on his head, and only you can think of learning to be a sorcerer by writing your way up. They both had another explosion of laughter, and Don Gennaro repeated his incredible movement. I liked him. There was so much grace and directness in his acts. Which direction is the wind? Don Gennaro asked casually. Don Juan pointed to the west with a movement of his head. I'd better go where the wind blows, Don Gennaro said with a serious expression. He then turned and shook his finger at me. And don't you pay any attention if you hear strange noises, he said. When Gennaro shits, the mountains tremble. He leaped into the bushes, and a moment later I heard a very strange noise, a deep, unearthly rumble. I did not know what to make of it. I looked at Don Juan for a clue, but he was doubled over with laughter. October 17, 1968. I don't remember what prompted Don Gennaro to tell me about the arrangement of the other world, as he called it. When he had finished talking, Don Juan looked at me and smiled knowingly. Talking is not Gennaro's predilection, he said. But if you care to get a lesson, he will teach you about the equilibrium of things. Don Gennaro nodded affirmatively. He puckered up his mouth and closed his eyelids halfway. I thought his gesture was delightful. Don Gennaro stood up, and so did Don Juan. All right, Don Gennaro said. Let's go, then. We could go and wait for Nestor and Pablito. They're through now. On Thursdays, they're through early. Both of them got into my car. Don Juan sat in the front. I did not ask them anything, but simply started the engine. Don Juan directed me to a place he said was Nestor's home. Don Gennaro went into the house, and a while later came out with Nestor and Pablito, two young men who were his apprentices. They all got in my car, and Don Juan told me to take the road toward the western mountains. We left my car on the side of the dirt road and walked along the bank of a river, which was perhaps fifteen or twenty feet across, to a waterfall that was visible from where I had parked. It was late afternoon. The scenery was quite impressive. We stopped at the bottom of the waterfall. It was perhaps a hundred and fifty feet high. The roar was very loud. Don Gennaro fastened a belt around his waist. He had at least seven items hanging from it. They looked like small gourds. The belt seemed to be made of woven strips of leather. I could not see whether he tied it or buckled it. Don Gennaro walked toward the waterfall. Don Juan manipulated a round rock into a steady position and sat down on it. The other two young men did the same with some rocks and sat down to his left. Don Juan pointed to the place next to him on his right side and told me to bring a rock and sit by him. We must make a line here, he said. 
showing me that the three were sitting in a row. By then, Don Gennaro had reached the very bottom of the waterfall and had begun climbing a trail on the right side of it. From where we were sitting, the trail looked fairly steep. There were lots of shrubs he used as railings. At one moment, he seemed to lose his footing and almost slid down as if the dirt were slippery. A moment later, the same thing happened, and the thought crossed my mind that perhaps Don Gennaro was too old to be climbing. I saw him slipping and stumbling several times before he reached the spot where the trail ended. Don Juan was looking straight at Don Gennaro. His gaze was fixed. His eyelids were half-closed. He was sitting very erect with his hands resting between his legs on the edge of the rock. Don Gennaro had climbed quite a way on the rocky wall. At the moment I looked, he was perched on a ledge, inching his way slowly to circumvent a huge boulder. His arms were spread as if he were embracing the rock. He moved slowly toward his right, and suddenly he lost his footing. I gasped involuntarily. For a moment his whole body hung in the air. I was sure he was going to fall, but he did not. His right hand had grabbed onto something, and very agilely his feet went back on the ledge again. But before he moved on, he turned to us and looked. It was only a glance. There was, however, such a stylization to the movement of turning his head that I began to wonder. I remembered then that he had done the same thing, turning to look at us every time he slipped. I had thought that Don Gennaro must have felt embarrassed by his clumsiness and turned to see if we were looking. He climbed a bit more toward the top, suffered another loss of footing, and hung perilously on the overhanging rock face. This time he was supported by his left hand. When he regained his balance, he turned and looked at us again. He slipped twice more before he reached the top. From where we were sitting, the crest of the waterfall seemed to be twenty to twenty-five feet across. Don Gennaro stood motionless for a moment. I wanted to ask Don Juan what Don Gennaro was going to do up there, but Don Juan seemed to be so absorbed in watching that I did not dare disturb him. Suddenly, Don Gennaro jumped onto the water. It was such a thoroughly unexpected action that I felt a vacuum in the pit of my stomach. It was a magnificent, outlandish leap. For a second I had the clear sensation that I had seen a series of superimposed images of his body making an elliptical flight to the middle of the stream. When my surprise receded, I noticed that he had landed on a rock on the edge of the fall, a rock which was barely visible from where we were sitting. He stayed perched there for a long time. He seemed to be fighting the power of the onrushing water. Twice he hung over the precipice, and I could not determine what he was clinging to. He gained his balance and squatted on the rock, then he leaped again like a tiger. I could barely see the next rock where he landed. It was like a small cone on the very edge of the fall. He remained there almost ten minutes. He was motionless. His immobility was so impressive to me that I was shivering. I wanted to get up and walk around. Don Juan noticed my nervousness and told me imperatively to be calm. Don Gennaro's stillness plunged me into an extraordinary and mysterious terror. I felt that if he remained perched there any longer, I could not control myself. Suddenly he jumped again, this time all the way to the other bank of the waterfall. He landed on his feet and hands like a feline. He remained in a squat position for a moment, then he stood up and looked across the fall to the other side and then down at us. He stayed dead still looking at us. His hands were clasped at his sides as if he were holding on to an unseen railing. There was something truly exquisite about his posture. His body seemed so nimble, so frail. I thought that Don Gennaro with his headband and feathers, his dark poncho and his bare feet, was the most beautiful human being I had ever seen. He threw his arms up suddenly, lifted his head and flipped his body swiftly in a sort of lateral somersault to his left. 
The boulder where he had been standing was round, and when he jumped, he disappeared behind it. Huge drops of rain began to fall at that moment. Don Juan got up, and so did the two young men. Their movement was so abrupt that it confused me. Don Gennaro's masterful feet had thrown me into a state of profound emotional excitement. I felt he was a consummate artist, and I wanted to see him right then to applaud him. I strained to look on the left side of the waterfall to see if he was coming down, but he was not. I insisted on knowing what happened to him. Let him be wherever he is. Perhaps he is an eagle flying to the other world, or perhaps he has died up there. It doesn't matter now. October 23, 1968. Don Juan casually mentioned that he was going to make another trip to central Mexico in the near future. Are you going to visit Don Gennaro? I asked. Perhaps, he said without looking at me. He's all right, isn't he, Don Juan? I mean, nothing bad happened to him up there on top of the waterfall, did it? Nothing happened to him. He is sturdy. Don Juan looked at me and said in a mischievous tone, You're dying to ask me about Gennaro's lesson, aren't you? I laughed with embarrassment. I had been obsessed with everything that took place at the waterfall. Gennaro risked a great deal to show you something magnificent. Too bad you can't see. Seeing is very difficult, he said. I begged him to explain his statement. Seeing is not a matter of talk, he said imperatively. Obviously, he was not going to tell me anything more, so I gave up and left the house to run some errands for him. When I returned, it was already dark. We had something to eat, and afterwards we walked out to the Ramada. We had no sooner sat down than Juan began to talk about Don Gennaro's lesson. He said that Don Gennaro, being a master of balance, could perform very complex and difficult movements. The action of sitting on his head without the aid of his hands was at best a freakish stunt that lasted only an instant. In Don Gennaro's opinion, writing about seeing was the same. That is, it was a precarious maneuver, as odd and as unnecessary as sitting on one's head. Don Juan peered at me in the dark and in a very dramatic tone said that while Don Gennaro was horsing around sitting on his head, I was on the very verge of seeing. Don Gennaro noticed it and repeated his maneuvers over and over to no avail because I had lost the thread right away. Don Juan said that afterwards Don Gennaro, moved by his personal liking for me, attempted in a very dramatic way to bring me back to that verge of seeing. After very careful deliberation, he decided to show me a feat of equilibrium by crossing the waterfall. He felt that the waterfall was like the edge on which I was standing and was confident I could also make it across. Don Juan then explained Don Gennaro's feet. He said that he had already told me that human beings were, for those who saw, luminous beings composed of something like fibers of light, which rotated from the front to the back and maintained the appearance of an egg. He said that he had also told me that the most astonishing part of the egg-like creatures was a set of long fibers that came out of the area around the navel. Don Juan said that those fibers were of the utmost importance in the life of a man. Those fibers were the secret of Don Gennaro's balance, and his lesson had nothing to do with acrobatic jumps across the waterfall. His feat of equilibrium was in the way he used those tentacle-like fibers. Don Juan dropped the subject as suddenly as he had started it and began to talk about something thoroughly unrelated. October 24, 1968 I cornered Don Juan and told him I intuitively felt that I was never going to get another lesson in equilibrium and that he had to explain to me all the pertinent details which I would otherwise never discover by myself. Don Juan said I was right, insofar as knowing that Don Gennaro would never give me another lesson. What else do you want to know, he asked. 
What are those tentacle-like fibers, Don Juan? They are the tentacles that come out of a man's body, which are apparent to any sorcerer who sees. Sorcerers act toward people in accordance to the way they see their tentacles. Weak persons have very short, almost invisible fibers. Strong persons have bright, long ones. Gennaros, for instance, are so bright that they resemble thickness. You can tell from the fibers if a person is healthy, or if he is sick, or if he is mean, or kind, or treacherous. You can also tell from the fibers if a person can see. Here is a baffling problem. When Gennaro saw you, he knew, just like my friend Vicente did, that you could see. When I see you, I see that you can see, and yet I know myself that you can't. How baffling. Gennaro couldn't get over that. I told him that you were a strange fool. I think he wanted to see that for himself and took you to the waterfall. You think everything in the world is simple to understand, he said, because everything you do is a routine that is simple to understand. At the waterfall, when you looked at Gennaro moving across the water, you believed that he was a master of somersaults, because somersaults was all you could think about, and that is all you will ever believe he did. Yet Gennaro never jumped across that water. If he had jumped, he would have died. Gennaro balanced himself on his superb, bright fibers. He made them long, long enough so that he could, let's say, roll on them across the waterfall. He demonstrated the proper way to make those tentacles long and how to move them with precision. Ablito saw nearly all of Gennaro's movements. Nestor, on the other hand, saw only the most obvious maneuvers. He missed the delicate details. But you, you saw nothing. If you could see, he said, it would have been obvious to you from the first step that Gennaro took that he was not slipping as he went up the side of the waterfall. He was loosening his tentacles. Twice he made them go around boulders, and held to the sheer rock like a fly. When he got to the top and was ready to cross the water, he focused them onto a small rock in the middle of the stream, and when they were secured there, he let the fibers pull him. Gennaro never jumped. Therefore, he could land on the slippery surfaces of small boulders at the very edge of the water. His fibers were at all times neatly wrapped around every rock he used. He did not stay on the first boulder very long because he had the rest of his fibers tied onto another one, even smaller, at the place where the onrush of water was the greatest. His tentacles pulled him again and he landed on it. That was the most outstanding thing he did. The surface was too small for a man to hold onto, and the onrush of the water would have washed his body over the precipice had he not had some of his fibers still focused on the first rock. He stayed in that second position for a long time, because he had to draw out his tentacles again and send them across to the other side of the fall. When he had them secured, he had to release the fibers focused on the first rock. That was very tricky. Perhaps only Gennaro could do that. He nearly lost his grip, or maybe he was only fooling us. We'll never know that for sure. Personally, I really think he nearly lost his grip. I know that because he became rigid and sent out a magnificent shoot like a beam of light across the water. I feel that beam alone could have pulled him through. When he got to the other side, he stood up and let his fibers glow like a cluster of lights. That was the one thing he did just for you. If you had been able to see, you would have seen that. Gennaro stood there looking at you, and then he knew that you had not seen. Don Juan was not at his house when I arrived there at midday on November 8, 1968. I had no idea where to look for him, so I sat and waited. For some unknown reason, I knew he would soon be home, 
A short while later, Don Juan walked into his house. He nodded at me. We exchanged greetings. He seemed to be tired and lay down on his mat. He yawned a couple of times. The idea of seeing had become an obsession with me, and I had made up my mind to use his hallucinogenic smoking mixture again. It had been a terribly difficult decision to make, so I still wanted to argue the point a bit further. I want to learn to see, Don Juan, I said bluntly, but I really don't want to take anything. I don't want to smoke your mixture. Do you think there is any chance I could learn to see without it? He sat up, stared at me for a moment, and lay down again. No, he said. You'll have to use the smoke. Seeing is not so simple, and only the smoke can give you the speed you need to catch a glimpse of that fleeting world. Otherwise, you will only look. The next day, November 9th, Don Juan let me eat only a morsel of food and told me to rest. I lay around all morning, but I could not relax. I had no idea what Don Juan had in mind, but worst of all, I was not certain what I had in mind myself. You haven't prepared your mixture for three years, he said suddenly. You'll have to smoke my mixture, so let's say that I have collected it for you. You'll need only a bit of it. I will fill the pipe's bowl once. You will smoke all of it and then rest. Then the keeper of the other world will come. You will do nothing but observe it. Observe how it moves. Observe everything it does. Your life may depend on how well you watch. Don Juan flatly refused to involve himself in conversation, but I was too nervous to stop talking, and I insisted desperately that he tell me about this guardian. You'll see it, he said casually. It guards the other world. With that, Don Juan went inside the house. I followed him into his room. Wait, wait, Don Juan, what are you going to do? He did not answer. He took his pipe out of a bundle and sat down on a straw mat in the center of the room, looking at me inquisitively. He seemed to be waiting for my consent. You're a fool, he said softly. You're not afraid. You just say you're afraid. He shook his head slowly from side to side. Then he took the little bag with the smoking mixture and filled the pipe bowl. I am afraid, Don Juan. I'm really afraid. No, it's not fear. I paced up and down the room in front of Don Juan, who was still sitting on his mat, holding his pipe and looking at me inquisitively. And upon considering the matter, I arrived at the conclusion that what I felt, instead of my usual fear, was a profound sense of displeasure, a discomfort at the mere thought of the confusion created by the intake of hallucinogenic plants. Don Juan stared at me for an instant, then he looked past me, squinting as if he were struggling to detect something in the distance. I kept walking back and forth in front of him until he forcefully told me to sit down and relax. We sat quietly for a few minutes. You don't want to lose your clarity, do you? He said abruptly. That's very right, Don Juan, I said. He laughed with apparent delight. Clarity, the second enemy of a man of knowledge, has loomed upon you. You're not afraid, he said reassuringly, but now you hate to lose your clarity. And since you're a fool, you call that fear. He chuckled. Get me some charcoals, he ordered. His tone was kind and reassuring. I got up automatically and went to the back of the house and gathered some small pieces of burning charcoal from the fire, put them on top of a small stone slab and returned to the room. Come out here to the porch, Don Juan called loudly from outside. He placed a straw mat on the spot where I usually sit. I put the charcoals next to him and he blew on them to activate the fire. I was about to sit down, but he stopped me and told me to sit on the right edge of the mat. He then put a piece of charcoal in the pipe and handed it to me. I took it. I was amazed at the silent forcefulness with which Don Juan had steered me. I could not think of anything to say. I had no more arguments. 
I was convinced that I was not afraid, but only unwilling to lose my clarity. Puff, puff, he ordered me gently. Just one bowl this time. I sucked on the pipe and heard the chirping of the mixture catching on fire. I felt an instantaneous coat of ice inside my mouth and my nose. <laughs> I know that's a heck of a place to leave off at, but uh, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait till next week to hear the rest of the story. This is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope, 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network. <laughs>